But without further ado, lovely Richard Dennis. Please welcome Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute. Oh, thank you. Well, that's a tough act to follow, and um, I did consider my presentation today in using the medium of dance, uh, but um, but I've uh, I've I've gone back to more conventional approach. Um, look, thanks uh, to the organisers uh, for putting on this fabulous event. Uh, thanks for inviting me, and and thank you all for for caring enough about building a new economy uh, to, to to spend uh, your time. Uh, at an event like this, which is not just a, an opportunity to learn, it's an opportunity to meet people, and I'll come to this later, it's also an opportunity to let other people, including the person sitting next to you, know that they're not alone. Because I think a lot of people uh, agree that we need to change course quite dramatically. But for 20 years, as, uh, as, as we just so eloquently heard in the song, uh, for 30 years indeed, we've kind of been told that there is no alternative. That sure, you can, you, can, you can have your fantasies about equity or environmental sustainability and building a new economy, fine, talk amongst yourselves. You know, the big kids will be over here uh, doing whatever it is they do. So it's important, it's very important to confer, to, to come together and realise that it's not crazy to think these thoughts and indeed we're not alone in having them. And that only happened because someone organised this event. So congratulations. Um, I've got some good news and some bad news. Uh, anyone who heard me last night thought, gee, he's in a bad mood. So I thought I'll, um, I thought I'll start <laughs> with the good news. Um, the good news is we're building a new economy right now. Um, the, the, there is no, the, the impossible thing is to keep the economy the way it is. The impossible thing is to keep society the way it is. You pick any time frame you want, We've seen radical change since then. So in the last 20 years, the economy has been uh, transformed phenomenally. If you'd have asked an economist in the 1980 to project out where the jobs would be created in 2017, in 1980, the best economic model in the world would have suggested that there are zero people employed today working in the mobile phone industry. A model can't predict something that hasn't been invented yet. In 1990, had the best modelers in the world been asked to ponder what will happen to the economy uh, when you know, things change between now and 2017, in 1990, it would have had zero people employed in the internet industry. And in the year 2000, those same clever modelers would have had zero people employed in the smartphone industry and presumably quite a lot of people working in photo development labs, street directories and hotel reception jobs that no longer exist. Because, and I am on your side, I want to build a new economy, we do not need a blueprint for it. It is beyond the wit of man to develop a blueprint for the economy in 2050. It is beyond your ability. But that is okay, because it is beyond everybody's ability, and every change that we have experienced happened without such a blueprint. Every big change from the agrarian revolution to the internal combustion engine to the invention of the telephone and the internet was rolled out on, let's just call it a suck it and see basis. Okay? It was a good idea and we did it. 
and sometimes it turned out to be a bad idea, so we kept doing it. <laughs> or we went, oh, fuck, and did it a bit different. I don't know why I got a pause for that, but thank you. <laughs> so my point is, I share your ambition, I share your goal, but I may or may not, because I don't know you, I may or may not share your tactics, because I think we have wasted decades taking the bait from people who hate us when they say, that's fascinating, why don't you go off and write a little plan for your new economy? And, oh, oh, that'll take five years. Oh, perfect. <laughs> now, I'm not opposed to thinking ahead. I'm not opposed to taking the information we have today and using it to the best that we can to help inform people about likely consequences. I am not anti the use of information and data. Indeed, my job is the, the use of information and data. What I am anti is my profession. I'm an economist. My PhD is in economic modelling. My profession or you pretending that you know what will happen in 2030 or 2040 if we do or don't spend money on renewable energy. You don't. I don't. No one does, and it doesn't matter. Because the number one thing that's going to cause unemployment in the next 50 years is not tackling climate change, it's capitalism. And we're taking responsibility for the adjustment burden. I grew up in the Hunter Valley. I watched the coal industry sack half of its workforce between 1985 and 1995 because they switched to long war mining technology and open pit. And there was no adjustment package. There was no just transition. There was a lot of unemployed coal miners. And we're rapidly, we're spending, we collectively, our community is spending hundreds of millions of dollars subsidising research into robot trucks and robot trains so we can employ even fewer people in coal mines in the future. Yet when we want to say, when we say we want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we want to spend a lot of money investing in renewable energy, what do they say? Oh, someone might lose their job. That's their plan. When Jeff Kennett privatised the electricity system in Victoria, 10,000 people lost their jobs in the Latrobe Valley. 10,000 people lost their jobs in the electricity industry through privatisation. But why can't we tackle climate change? Well, someone might lose their job. Well, to be clear, I care a lot when people lose their job. I care when coal miners lose their job. I care when photo development lab people lose their job. I care about receptionists that used to answer the phone at hotels and have been replaced with fantastically efficient websites lose their job. I care about people who lose their jobs, comma, whether they work in coal or not. And our political debate has been deliberately, this is not an accident, we are not fighting stupid people, we are fighting smart people who are beating us. Our political debate has been dominated by the bizarre thought that the reason we can't implement wide-reaching energy policy that might solve a national and international problem is that someone might lose their job. From the politicians that promised us act politicians, who've introduced 20 years of free trade agreements and 20 years of privatisations, which all inevitably led to what? Job losses. 
So I care about inequality and I care about structural change and structural change causes unemployment. Tractors displaced millions of manual labourers on farms. They did. And there aren't many people saying, oh, I think we should get rid of the tractors to create jobs. But that doesn't mean that it was a fun 30 years for the agrarian class that had saw their income smashed as their jobs were displaced by tractors. The transition was brutal and painful and no one gave a shit about those people. But it wasn't the tractors that didn't give a shit about those unemployed people. Who was it? It's the people who profited from switching from labour to cat to tractors. So when, when we transition away from building new coal mines and spending a lot of money on renewable energy, when we transition our economy in all sorts of ways, people will lose their jobs and that's not your fault. What would be your fault would be to not care about those people. Right? The unemployment rate in Australia is less than $15,000 a day and hundreds of thousands of people are on it right now. What's their just transition plan? I am not opposed. I am not opposed to developing plans to help people and regions that are affected by policy change. But I've watched us not do that for 30 years. And it's never stopped us before. Kennett didn't put, press pause on privatising electricity until he'd come up with a just, a just transition for the Latrobe workers. So I'm not saying we shouldn't care about people who are displaced through building a new economy. I'm saying we should care about everybody who's displaced. Whether they're displaced because of technological change, policy change, demographic change, who knows it? This is not rocket science. So, big picture. Uh, we're building a new economy. We can't foresee it. We have no idea exactly what the economy will look like in 2050 for the same reason no one in 1990 Indeed, no one in 2000 could have predicted that this event would be organised primarily through the internet. But that's okay. It's okay that we don't know exactly what's going to happen. So, that's the first point. The second point is that we need to change so much more than our policy settings. Okay? Yeah, a carbon price would be a great idea. Sign me up. Tick. That's not nearly enough. Our society is unsustainable. And an unsustainable society creates an unsustainable economy. And we can get caught up chicken and egg. Well, which is it? Is it the economic forces that drive society or is it the social factors that drive the economy? I'm just going to tell you till I'm blue in the face, it's both. And let's not get paralysed arguing over which it is and fight both at the same time. Um, I think I used this example last night, so apologies, but I do think it's a good one. Um, uh, the largest irrigated crop in the US, the largest irrigated crop, the crop that accounts for the largest amount of surface area in America is lawn. Lawn. Grass. Watered, manicured, fertilised, mowed. Now that's fine. Nothing wrong with a lawn. We don't have a lot of lawn because grass seed is cheap. And you wouldn't discourage lawn by introducing a grass seed tax. 
People grow lawns because they want to grow lawns. Growing lawn is a cultural phenomenon. It's a new phenomenon. Typically post-World War II, the idea of the manicured front lawn as a statement of good neighbourliness, good citizenship, man's dominion over his environment, all sorts of weird stuff. <laughs> That's okay. No, but this is the point. That's what culture is. Culture is what we think is normal. Right? Culture is me wearing shoes most days when I'm in public, even though I don't really like shoes. Culture is me wearing a tie from time to time, even though I don't really want to literally put a noose around my neck. <laughs> but I, I don't begrudge putting a tie on. A tie is a symbol, and my culture expects me to send certain symbols at certain points in my day. And that's what a culture is. And I fear, not you, but the person sitting next to you has... <laughs> has put a little bit too much effort in the last 20 years into saying we need a renewable energy target or we need a, a carbon price and not enough effort into saying we need to change the fucking world. But don't get me wrong, sign me up, give me a carbon price, hooray. Okay, but that's surrounding error. Okay, it's part of what we need, but it's not what we need. And I fear that for all of our criticism of neoliberalism, and I don't mean this as a value statement, but more as a political strategy, that we've kind of over-invested in those kind of unique one-by-one -one policy things. Now, to be clear, I'm choosing my words carefully here. I think that stuff's important. I spend most of my time doing that sort of stuff, right? Because policy can actually change culture. Right, but let's not lose sight of the fact that we need to change culture as well as, uh, as, well as our carbon pricing regime. So, uh, so step one, we're going to build a new economy. Step two, we need to figure out what direction that we want that new economy to be built in. Okay? And that's a democratic decision that anyone and everyone can participate in. And, and again, I, I alluded to this last night, but... Let's not get too caught up with GDP. And when I say not too caught up, I mean you accuse, not you, the person sitting next to you, accuse them of obsessing about GDP when we all know it's a silly number. And it is a silly number and the people who invented it it said, and I'm paraphrasing, not quoting here, for God's sake, don't ever use it as an indicator of national well-being. <laughs> like I'm not, this is not new, all right? The people who invented it said that. But we did it anyway. That's not the numbers' fault, right? It's us, ours collectively. Five minutes, perfect. I don't use PowerPoint. I think power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. Um, <laughs> and what that means is I always finish on time rather than say, I've just got these 30 slides that I haven't used yet. So you give me the one minute and I'll finish on time. Um, so, uh, so big picture, we say they obsess about GDP too much and that's why we know it should grow at zero or we know that it should fall by some arbitrary amount. Well, let's just recap. Is it a stupid fucking number? So why do we care what number it is? What we want and this is controversial, apologies, is growth. We want growth in renewable energy, quick. 
We probably want to rebuild our cities in far more sustainable ways. You know what we'll accidentally cause when we rebuild our cities in sustainable ways? Jobs and growth. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. I'm serious. Right, you add up your wish list in this room and you go implement it and you know what you'll do? You'll cause a shitload of economic growth. You will. And that's fine. Because GDP is irrelevant, remember. I agree. What we want is growth in the stuff we want more of. We want growth in the stuff that we want more of. And we want decline. You might even be able to figure this out yourself. We want decline <laughs> in the stuff we want not hard, is it? So we want growth of some stuff, and we want decline of some stuff. And what would the net effect of that be? What do you think my answer is? Who cares? <laughs> right? I don't want stable GDP. I don't want stable GDP. I don't want GDP to fall. I don't want GDP to rise. I don't have a view. What I have a view about is the parts of our society that I want to grow. And I have a very strong view about the parts that I want to shrink. And if we just pursue those goals, encourage individuals, communities and countries to put more time and effort and sometimes money, we can do it with or without money, it's up to you, we have that conversation in a different talk, but let's say resources, time and effort, put more time and effort into the things we want more of and less time and effort into the things we want less of, you know what we'll have accidentally built? A new economy. <laughs> Hopefully one we like the look of more. And you know what? We won't all agree on it. And that's okay because you're never going to get 24 million people to agree on it. But if we can all agree that we don't need new coal mines, what do you think maybe we should try and do? Not build some new coal mines. And if we all want more renewable energy, well, we can all go off and work on that. And someone says, but that's not the only thing we need. We need this as well, to which I say, good on you. Go talk a lot of people into joining you, and in a democracy, you might, you might get somewhere. Or you might not. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you're right, because if you got what you wanted all the time, the person sitting next to you would hate you. We do actually have to sort it out, but the tools uh, are certainly within our grasp. So to wrap up, um, we don't need, I'm all for talking about economics and new theories and blah, 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 great, but we don't need any great new theory to get more of the things we want and less of the things we don't. We know how tax works, we know how subsidies work, we know how regulation works. Right, we need to build political strategies that can deliver that. That's pr proved hard in the last couple of decades. Right, but that's, you don't need new anything there. Other people have kind of tackled big things in the past with institutions not as strong as ours. And, and, and finally, I'm just going to end with a self-promoting plug. Um, uh, I've, I've got a new book coming out in six weeks. It's called Curing Affluenza. Um, and and it, just, it basically makes a case for the kind of stuff that I did today, but I just want to leave you with my most kind of potentially controversial point and I actually, you know, co-wrote Affluenza years ago with Clive and I've changed my mind about a few things, not much, but in the book I make a case for materialism. I think we need materialism. But I distinguish between consumerism, which is the love of buying things, and materialism, which is the love of the physical things themselves. 
And I know that's not very spiritual to love physical things, but you know, if we physically love stuff, you know what you're unlikely to do with stuff that you say you love? Chuck it out and buy a new one all the time. It's not tables that are ruining the world. It's people that buy a new table every 12 months to send a symbolic statement about the newness of it. But that's the love of the buying the thing that's causing us the harm. And that's all the economic activity that we've confused with progress. Don't confuse being busy with achieving your goals. And don't think for a minute, if we're busy doing the right things, we can't change the world. Thank you very much. All right, so questions. I've got a gentleman here. Richard, you've undoubtedly read Prosperity Without Growth. Can you tell us whether, whether the economics in that book stack up, please? Uh, is that working? Um, yeah, look, I think the economics stack up, but I think the economics are, are just a lot simpler than that. Um, so, I, yeah, I've got no problem um, uh, with Tim's work at all. I think it's really important. Um, the, the point I make in the book is simply, and the point I was making today is, uh, if, if, if we spend a lot of time and resources building stuff that we chuck away, that hardly seems efficient. And economics is about the efficient allocation of scarce resources. How, well, it's supposed to be. That's what economics is about. Whether politicians use it for that, whether business people take our language and use it for that is different. But don't blame the discipline for its abuse. There's plenty of dumb economists around, I agree. But <coughs> economics defines itself as the science of the efficient allocation of scarce resources. And if we as a society literally wasted far less resources, less time growing food that got thrown out without getting eaten, imagine how much wealth we'd have to solve problems we do care about. And by the way, imagine how much more time we'd have. Think about the energy that goes not just into growing a lettuce, that, but transporting and refrigerating a lettuce and then picking that lettuce up from your waste bin and taking it to a landfill and burying it again. All right, this is, we know that's not efficient, right? Well, you don't need to be an economist to think, wow, if we reallocated the resources from that to something important, imagine what we could do. So I just think we need to kind of keep our eye on the big picture of what we want, what we don't want, and what processes we think make sense. And, and the economics will kind of take care of itself. Thank you. Another question. Yeah. Um, how do we overcome the ideological barriers that are holding us back? Um, we win. Um, we, 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 we get better at articulating what we want than they are because they're beating us because they're good at it and we're losing because we're crap at it. Um, and we can blame them all we want. We can feel smarter than them, but they're beating us. Um, I think we put too much effort into building our perfect plan for 2050 and then being criticised for it not being perfect, uh, than just actually articulating, hang on, I'm confused, we need $50 billion to build 12 new subs to replace the six we haven't used yet, and we can't afford to spend money on renewable energy. Have I got that right? Sorry, you, you, you conservative governments don't like public spending except on submarines and joint strike fighters and 
Like, we just, they don't like, here's the thing, and I loved the song before and I agree with the sentiment, but we, we flatter our opponents unfairly when we call them economic rationalists. We flatter them unfairly when we call them ideologues. They are not. They are brutal, pragmatic politicians who love giving money to their friends and hate giving money to their foes. And as soon as we admit that and stop pretending that their ideology means they don't want to spend money on health when they're more than happy to go and waste money on some stupid other scheme, they don't mind spending public money. They mind spending public money on what you want. But they're too smart to admit that. No, they just make it a point of principle. It's not. They're just giving money to their friends. We need to call them out. Hello. That, thanks very much for that. That was fantastic. Uh, um, but could, could I ask about... Um, um, that it's like a triumvirate at the moment. You know, government, corporations and the media. How does a new economy fight against all that? Or, or, or does it fight? Yeah. Uh, uh, because they're like... You know, they're, lo they're like monsters, like um, what you, <laughs> the thing <laughs> yeah. we're saying before. Anyway. Look, I, 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 understand, uh, I understand the premise of your question, but I, I'm going to reject it. Um, we, we need government. government. You can't have a democracy without government, right? So we should never say government is the problem. We might want to say this government is the problem. No, this is really important. Like, the, the right want us to blame government. We shouldn't say the politicians. We might want to say this politician. Because if you say they're all the same, and if you say government's stupid and inefficient, well, you can't have democracy without politicians, and you can't have democracy without government to turn ideas into action. So when we get trapped into blaming politicians collectively and the government collectively, we've, we've actually given up our strongest thing. So, yeah, I agree, government's doing some crazy stuff, but I've got no problem with government. I don't like this government. I don't like your Queensland state government subsidising the Adani mine. I hope a future Queensland government does things I like. Um, corporations, yeah, okay, you know, Naomi Klein, this changes everything, capitalism needs to go. Okay, well, let's, let's put the organic farmers up against the wall first. Uh, and then we'll move on to the small startup corporations here, and then maybe we'll go take on Elon Musk for the damage he's doing to the oil industry. Um, I've got no problem with reforming capitalism, and I've got no problem with people saying you can have an economy without capitalism. You absolutely can. But let's play the corporations off against each other, please. Let's figure out who the bad ones are, and let's go aim them at each other. Okay, let's not unite all our foes at once and then say, gee, we're having a tough time beating them. <laughs> so, uh, and then media, yeah, we're going to need media. But, you know, I remember when Kerry Packer was dominating the Australian media in the 1980s and when Channel 9 was, the, you know, the most influential thing and now, of course, it's Google that's driving everything, blah, blah, blah. Um, let me give you a tip. If we're waiting for wealth and power and the global media to come to our meeting and say, shit, I'm with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go do this. <laughs> It'll be a long way. We will always be fighting the status quo because by definition we're pushing for change. All right? We are not the first generation, we are not the first country to confront wealth and power who like things the way they are. We need to be smarter about navigating that 
And I, again, I understand the, 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 the premise of your question, but I think if we just put them all up there and say, wow, how are we going to beat all that power at once? We're not. We're going to have to be smarter than beating them all at once. We're going to have to play them off against each other. Excellent. Thank you. Hi, Richard. To be honest, I don't think that is the question that she was framing. I think she's looking at in what way do you shift the thinking of these entities together apart? Makes no difference. How you shift the status that you want to go to a collaborative framework? I know that my thing is changing currency to do that, but I know that's not what you agree. You think debt-based money's okay. So in the current framework of shifting this thinking, where's your status driver? We know all the problems. Where's the status driver to shift it over? Where's the status driver to shift? I missed the last to a, to a collaborative economic construct that values sustainability, regeneration. I know someone just said education, sure, but we can educate it infinitum. If there's no driver to push the education, so that's why I'm asking, what's the driver to shift it over? Um, look, I, I, I don't have an answer to your question. Let me, let me give you a partial response. Uh, the Australia Institute did a paper a couple of years ago where we mapped the co-op sector in Australia. We mapped the community-owned organisations. Co-ops broadly defined and narrowly defined, blah, blah, blah. We did some survey work to inform that. And um, more than 85% of people who were members of the co-op bookshop didn't know they were members of a co-op. There was a hint in the name. <laughs> So, <laughs> again, I, I just think we do ourselves a massive disservice when we kind of talk about this monolithic thing called the capitalism that we want to change. We don't talk enough about all the diversity that already exists. Is it enough? No. Do we need more of it? Yes. Would we get more of it by explaining to people it already exists, it already works perfectly well, if you hate it? The number of times during that sort of post-GFC period, people would say, Richard, how, how can we move on from, you know, the big corporate banks and, you know, blah, blah. I'm like, well, building society? Join a build? No, no, not like, you know, something that, you know, it's owned by the community and, you know, an invest back. Oh, like, like a building society. <laughs> like, like, no, like the sales pitch for these organisations, and I'm sorry, I know some of them are here today, like, but the public don't know. Right? The proportion of Australians that work for the ASX-listed companies is trivial. Uniting Care and Anglicare employ more people combined than the entire coal industry. True. All right? But we go on oh, them and the corporations and they're on the mainstream media all the time. That's right. They're on the mainstream media all the time, making themselves seem bigger and more important than they are. I'm not saying that they're going to fall over it, you know, when we show up and say we want change. But we don't help drive change by telling everyone how big and important they are all the time. I guess kind of following on from that question, are you inspired by, you know, this platform cooperativism, you know, this new economy that we're trying to have a conversation about here today? I'm getting a little bit of a maybe you're not so much that working on the governmental, the bigger picture kind of level is more important, like what's, you know, this kind of grassroots uh, activity this, that's, that's burgeoning, does it inspire you? Uh, absolutely, I'm, I've dedicated my life to it. I, I work for a non-profit and I don't feel, I don't wake up in the morning going, yeah, better earn some non-profit today. <laughs> <laughs> really hope I. <laughs> like, 
course it inspires me. It's everything I've spent my life doing. Um, I'm just trying to provoke you into seeing that perhaps we might be better at bringing people to our cause if we saw ourselves and our cause more, uh, more ambitiously and, and not celebrated our successes in the, gee, we've already done it, but we're not starting from scratch. <laughs> we're not starting from scratch. So, uh, so big picture, and, and I try to make this point in the book, it's probably one of the hardest points to make, I think that good policy development, when it's implemented, the policy helps change the culture. And I think good debates about cultural change make it easier to get good policy up. So I think these two things reinforce each other. And you know what the clearest proof I can think of is? Economic rationalism. <laughs> oh, look at it. Okay, it's this bizarre, but kind of easy to communicate worldview that makes it easier to get appalling policy up. And every time you get appalling policy up and you divide people more effectively and you make the world a less even place, it gets easier to convince everyone that everyone's selfish. Right, so they change the world knowing that ideology and, and vision affects policy and that policy affects ideology and worldview. And yeah, we're sitting here raging against them. So don't beat yourself up and say, should we be working at the government level or should I be doing this at the community level or should I just spend more time online figuring out what the most organic vegetable is? Like, do all three. But why not try and do each of those three in ways that reinforce the other two? Like, don't, don't get trapped into the neoliberalism of there's only one solution. Be organic about it. I like that very much. On that note, let's thank Richard Dennis.